Support for Inquisitive comes from Campaign Monitor and Bushel. Welcome back to Inquisitive Behind the App. I'm Mike Hurley. If you've not yet heard our previous episodes in this series, you should. Go to relay.fm slash inquisitive to check them out and subscribe. When Apple unveiled the App Store in March of 2008, they made it clear that the App Store would be the only way for developers to get their software onto iPhones. Apple wanted to be the gatekeeper. The App Store is going to be the exclusive way to distribute iPhone applications. Will there be limitations? Of course. There are going to be some apps that we're not going to distribute. Porn, (laughs) malicious apps, apps that invade your privacy. So there will be some apps that we're going to say no to, but again, we have exactly the same interest as the vast majority of our developers, which is to get a ton of apps out there for the iPhone, and we think we've invented an incredibly great way to do it, which is the App Store. Also during the unveiling of the store, Apple gave the first indication that not only would they control the store, they would also have a say in which apps would be allowed. We didn't know in 2008 just what form this process would take. Developers had always distributed directly to their users in the past, but now Apple was intervening with their method. For anyone familiar with Apple's products, they take an opinionated view on how things should work. And this opinionated view also came to the App Store. Apple would dictate what would be allowed, disallowed, and how it would be sold. The ethics, the process, and whether this has helped or hurt developers is what we're going to start exploring today. When the App Store was announced, little information was known about how or why apps would be approved for sale. Some people thought it would be an easy process, some thought that Apple would be judging on quality, but from the people that I've spoken to over the course of this series, nobody felt that it was unreasonable. Here's David Smith, Marco Arment and Russell Ivanovich on their initial impressions. It seemed reasonable. If if I'm honest, when I think back to then, it seemed to sort of, I didn't have a lot of of sort of experience otherwise to to think about it. And so it seemed like a reasonable thing to do that if you're, it's kind of going to be their store. And so they want to make sure, you know, in the same way that I couldn't just walk into an Apple store, take, you know, bring in in a box of software and just start putting it on the shelf. You know, I'd probably get arrested or something if I started doing that. Um, In the same way, they just viewed it as this is their store. And so they're going to have at least some say in what goes there. My main concern at the time, which turned out sadly not to be true, uh, was that Apple was going to think my app just wasn't good enough and that they were going to be applying these quality standards to to apps. Like, not just do you break any of these rules, yes or no, but is your app just not very good? Is it, you know, is it is it too ugly? Is it... You know, is, does the interface just not make enough sense? Is it just not very nice to use? I thought they were going to be rejecting apps based on that. And and they do a little bit of that today, but very, very little. Um, it's, you know, as you can tell by looking in the App Store. Uh, most most of the apps that, that you'll come across if you search for something are are apps that I would have thought would have gotten rejected. I, I guess in the early days, I didn't, I didn't mind that much. You know, we hadn't had a lot of experience in, in dealing directly with, with consumers, so we weren't kind of missing out on that bit. And the approval times, you know, weren't that bad early long, early on as far as I can remember. And the process wasn't, you know, terrible. You'd put things in there, 
you know, they get approved and they're in the store. You know, we were, in the early days, we were very happy with that sort of relationship. As the months went on after the App Store's release in July 2008, what started to become clear is that Apple's process for approving apps was more stringent than they had originally let on. Publicly, all Apple had said is that they would not be allowing malicious apps, porn, and other seemingly obvious categories onto the store. However, as time went by, there was more and more news of apps being rejected for more obscure reasons. One notable rejection came in September of 2008, an app called Podcaster that allowed you to subscribe to and download podcasts to your iPhone was rejected by Apple. The developer, Almiri, received the following comment from an Apple representative. Since Podcaster assists in the distribution of podcasts, it duplicates the functionality of the podcast section of iTunes. The app was only rejected because it was already possible to download podcasts using Apple's iTunes app on the iPhone. But this wasn't an isolated occurrence. There were many reports of developers whose apps were rejected for similar reasons, like Angelo Dinardi, whose app Mail Wrangler was rejected by Apple for the following reason. Your application duplicates the functionality of the built-in iPhone application Mail without providing sufficient differentiation or added functionality, which will lead to user confusion. The biggest problem surrounding these rejections was that the reasons for them did not match what Apple had publicly stated at the time. Apple was giving no guidance to developers. There were no policies and no rules. Coming up, I'm going to take a look at how the NDA that Apple put in place for iPhone developers may have affected development. But before we do that, let me take a moment to thank one of our sponsors for this week's episode, and that is Bushel. Bushel is a cloud-based mobile device management solution for the Mac, iPhone, and iPad. It allows you to take control of the devices that you have for people that work in your business or your team. But what makes Bushel different is that you don't have to read a bunch of IT books to understand how to use it. Bushel has been designed and built to be used by anyone. It is a really powerful IT tool that doesn't need a dedicated IT manager to look after it. Their user interface is really clean and simple to understand, and it puts great power at your fingertips. With Bushel, you can easily manage the Apple devices used by members of your team. You can very quickly set up and manage email accounts. You can have the ability to make passwords and passcodes a requirement, and you can remotely install apps on devices so that people can get their work done. Bushel can also really help with your own bring your own device scheme in your workplace. You can set up people's personal phones with all of the settings and apps that they need, keeping them all secured. And if they leave the company, you can wipe all that specific data off that one device or any device remotely without touching that individual's personal stuff. All of their data on their phone remains as it was, but the things that you put on to help them work in your business, that's all taken away. Bushel allows for simple, automatic setup of Apple devices in your workplace, allowing you to simply configure and manage them without having to devote all of the resources of an IT manager. With Bushel, you can get all of the control that your business needs without having to lose all of your time. You can sign up right now at bushel.com slash inquisitive. The first three devices you register will be free for life, and for any more, it's just $2 per device per month. Thank you so much to Bushel for supporting this show and all of Relay FM. In 2008, Apple made all developers agree to a non-disclosure agreement, or NDA, for the App Store. 
This meant that developers could not legally share any information that they came across about developing for the platform. They could not legally talk about iPhone app development publicly, as they ran the risk of losing their developer license if they did. Even those rejection messages that I spoke about a moment ago were technically breaking the NDA, but I assume those developers took the risk of posting them as they were kind of already at their wit's end. The NDA always was this strange thing, which where Apple would announce something. Typically, it'd be like a, a public keynote, a public event, something at WWDC, some kind of sales event. They'd announce something new and cool and we'd wait, we'd wait you know, six, six to 12 hours and then... The technical parts of that would appear in the developer portal. From then until it was, you know, available to the public, which was, you know, often six six months later, developers weren't allowed, or at least, you know, technically allowed, to speak publicly about what was going on inside of that. Both, you know, the technical difficulties, if they hit a bug, if something's weird, or even more pragmatically talking about the possibilities for using something, how you do, you know, what it's like, I'm thinking it might be cool if I use this API to build this. What do you think? And kind of having that more collaborative experience. And as a result, it was always felt unnecessarily constrained and difficult to develop software that takes advantage of the new stuff of the, like whenever Apple makes something new and interesting, that at the time when they're supposed to be probably trying to get developers most excited about using that new capability, about using the new platform, about taking advantage of whatever the, the new thing is, that's exactly the moment when every, developers can't talk to each other and get help about it. And it's at the time when there's the least amount of documentation because all we have to go on is what Apple provided. And I felt like it always slow things down in a way that was counterproductive. Looking back on this, it seems that any real reason for creating the NDA was kind of pointless. Apple most likely made this decision to try and stop their competitors from being able to copy or steal from the iPhone OS when building their own platforms. However, anybody could sign up to be in the Apple development program, so there was nothing stopping them from just taking a look at it anyway. My suspicion is that Apple had the NDA in place because of some lawyer somewhere saying that it was an important thing for them to do. I've heard some people say it had something to do with patents and intellectual property things that technically, if everything's under NDA, then it hasn't sort of, it, they haven't made it available to the public. And so from an intellectual property perspective, it's still, you know, secret and is easier to have patents or control over. I have no idea. I'm not a lawyer. Apple loves control. They love to be able to control the message about whatever it is that they're building. And I think there was a fear that if developers could talk about what it is they're doing publicly and show and share about it, that suddenly they're not in control of the message and it could run away from them. That so much of what Apple's marketing is about is this kind of feeling of one day they arrive on a stage with this fully formed, beautiful thing. And that's what the customer sees. But I think really it belies the fact that the mo most of their customers don't read my blog. Most of their customers are not developers, aren't people who are going to really get in the weeds of a new API and what it could do. 
And so they were constraining developers in a way that wasn't actually really protecting their customers from that marketing message. I believe that the NDA enforced on developers was a key example of how Apple's policy of secrecy has actually come to bite them back. I genuinely feel that stopping developers from being able to share their experiences and create resources will have held back faster advancement for the platform. In not allowing people to talk about what they were learning and the struggles they were having, it will have held people back from being able to make their work even better. In 2014, after the release of the software development kit for iOS 8, Apple lifted the NDA, finally allowing developers to talk openly about their experiences with iPhone and Apple development. This is one of the big changes seen under Tim Cook's Apple. Whilst the company as a whole is doubling down on secrecy for products in development, Cook is showing a different side to Apple that does seem more approachable and open, like the public blog they set up for Swift, their new development language. This is a different side of Apple that bodes well for the future. And so as we're now probably in the last year or so, Apple has been increasingly just getting rid of that and it's not really a concern anymore. I can see this and I can see the amazing benefits it has to be able to freely talk and discover and share and help each other with problems on on the new stuff. And I'm much more excited about the ways in which I'm taking advantage of the new stuff Apple's putting out, whether it's on the watch or even back with iOS 8 when it came out, um, than I was back in the NDA days, where you kind of are playing this weird game of we're all kind of running around on our own in the dark. And then at some point, Apple flips the light on and we all look around and see what everyone else did and what everyone else is doing. And it's great to just be able to, you know, work in, work in the light and not have all this weird back alley conversations and stuff that we used to. In January of 2009, Apple allowed a selection of third-party web browsers onto the App Store. This marked a change in their policy for not allowing apps onto the store that duplicated functionality. But there was no official announcement, no policy change, nothing announced from Apple. These apps just started to appear, indicating a change, but still nobody knew for sure. There were many instances like this in which there seemed to be some kind of shift in the types of apps Apple was comfortable with, but there was nothing documenting them. You just had to try and guess that things had changed. During this time period, the most frustrating part about being an iPhone developer was that you were quite clearly fumbling around in the dark, hoping that what you were working on would meet an unknown set of criteria. But finally, in September of 2010, a full two years after the App Store was introduced, Apple unveiled the App Store guidelines and introduced the review board. The guidelines more clearly outlined what Apple was looking for from app developers, and the review board was there as a place to make appeals to if you felt that your app was incorrectly rejected. Whilst the guidelines themselves were a little difficult to understand in places and were definitely open to interpretation, the fact that there was now a set of rules that could give you some kind of guidance in making your decisions was a huge and much-needed addition to the Apple Developer Program. While we may do it otherwise, it is definitely helpful to now be in a world where I have not perfect confidence, but I have some confidence about at least the basics about what's allowed and what isn't. And I think 
the benefit of that, honestly, is less for someone like myself who's been doing this for so long. But its advantage is to new developers that if someone shows up the first day, like at, you, you sort of you can hand them three or four different documents and say, read these and you'll kind of understand what it is to make an app on the App Store. You know, here's the human interface guidelines for what your app should look like. Here's the programming guide for how it should function. And here's the review guidelines uh, for what's allowed and what isn't. And I think that is a tremendously powerful thing to avoid frustration starting off with, uh, which removes that ambiguity. Uh, and obviously, even having now having published review guidelines, it's not like Apple doesn't have any review controversy. You know, in the last few months, we've seen tons of that. But at least it's a reasonable step to say, here is the starting point. And the ambiguities are now on the fringes or on the new stuff, rather than the ambiguities being in the core stuff. Well, and they still don't tell you anything about the reviewers. Like, I remember, I, uh, I forget, somebody, somebody through like minor details, uh, I eventually learned this from somebody who worked there, but uh, like at first it, it was, it, and it still is very unclear, um, who reviews the apps? Are these like, is there like a, a, a big building in Cupertino somewhere full of hundreds of app reviewers? Because they have to review a lot of apps. It has to be a very large staff. Who are these people? Are they Apple employees? Is it contracted out to somewhere like India? Do they work 24 hours a day? Like, do they work on weekends? All of these things are very vague and, and never, like Apple has never specified. We've, you've never been able to tell. Um, and, and the truth is that from what I've been told, they are full-time Apple employees and I'm pretty sure they're all or mostly based in Cupertino. And they do sometimes work weekends because they get behind. Like, because, <laughs> like, you know, you get, like, rejections on, like, a Saturday night. Like, where are these people? Like, they're, this, you know, they must be outsourced. Yeah. But from what I understand, they're not outsourced. They actually just work a lot because they, they get behind sometimes. <laughs> well, this is the thing. Seven years on and um, dealing with Google Play where, you know, you submit something. There's no approval process. An hour later, it's in there. Seven years on, it feels painful. And honestly, sometimes it feels not vindictive, but sometimes it feels like when you're dealing with Apple, you're dealing with a big company that's that's a little bit apathetic towards developers. So we've sometimes had critical bug fixes that we have to get out for one of our products. You know, something's crashing, something's not working. And they'll sometimes be rejected for the stupidest reasons. You know, you have something in your description that was there previously, but this particular reviewer who's handling it today, uh, he or she doesn't like it. And so now your app is, is rejected and you have to go through the whole process. We once had two weeks of struggling to try and get out a critical bug fix. And, you know, we tried the whole expedited review. We tried all sorts of things. And and it's just a process that you have to go through sometimes. And I've got to be honest, these days to me, it feels like security theater. Like I don't see a lot of benefits to Apple actually policing the store that way. I mean, I don't think they'll ever change. I think that's just how it is. But I really don't don't see the benefit for all the the headaches that we as developers go through like i understand that they want to keep certain things out of their store and they they want to try and prevent malware and that sort of thing but i don't think the app review process achieves any of that like i think it's just a real pain for developers to deal with and seven years on i dread it every time i have to release something A moment ago, David Smith mentioned app review controversy. This is something we've touched on a little during this episode. 
Over time, as Apple have introduced and amended more rules and guidelines, the goalposts have changed for developers. In 2014, with the release of iOS 8, Apple were claiming that they were making the biggest changes to iOS since its original release. The enhancements of the tools developers could use was huge, and the addition of extensions brought with it a whole new type of opportunity for developers. One of these developers, Greg Gardner, who runs an app development company called Chromulent Labs, created an app called Launcher. Launcher was an app that allowed you to create shortcuts to your favorite apps and have them display in your notification center. This allowed you to quickly access your favorite apps from wherever you were on iOS. After this break, you're going to hear from Greg as he talks about the struggles that he went through with App Store Review. This episode of Inquisitive has been brought to you by Campaign Monitor, an elegant email marketing service for designers, agencies, and businesses. More than 2 million people, over 120,000 companies around the world, love Campaign Monitor for its simple and beautiful user experience, pixel-perfect design, and 24-7 global support. Campaign Monitor's customers love their email building tool. It's called Canvas, and it helps you create elegant, responsive templates that look incredible on all screen sizes. And you can even target your content according to your customers' preferences. Then once you've sent out your campaigns, you can see how they perform in real time with Worldview. This is just something that's super cool, and it's amazing to see your subscribers pop up on this really interactive world map as they're viewing your emails. Campaign Monitor works great with teams. It's super easy to collaborate with clients or the people that you work with. You can really easily set permissions, rebrand the interface, and even manage billing for client projects all from within their app. If you want to find out more about Campaign Monitor, go check them out and sign up for a free account right now at campaignmonitor.com. Campaign Monitor, helping you send beautiful emails to get better results. Greg Gardner's story is a particularly interesting one, and it all started with some peculiar events on the day after his app was released. I stressed and try, you know, worked as hard as I could to try to get it out uh, the day iOS 8 came out. Um, I submitted it to be featured and, it, and I got the, you know, the email saying, you know, you need, you know, it could be featured if you give us some artwork. I did that. Um, I got it out. Uh, it got approved, um, you know, the day iOS 8 came out, which is I think September 17th. And uh, it, it went out and it was featured briefly and then taken down, which I thought was odd. And I didn't know what was going on there. And it was approved at like 1030 in the morning. And like maybe by before noon, I got a call from uh, somebody at App Review who said, uh, oh, uh, it wasn't actually supposed to be approved. Uh, can you take it down? And I said, what are you talking about? He was like, I'll call you back in the next 24 to 48 hours. But I didn't hear back from him. So I thought everything was fine. Um, it started doing really well. I was getting 30, 40,000 downloads a day. Some percentage of those people were, were upgrading to the pro version. So, you know, I was making money and looking at this going, wow, this is going really well. Um, this is great. It was featured for like the first like four or five hours and then it got taken down and I couldn't get a straight answer out of Apple as to why. Um, and then, you know, the next, it was uh, out for, I think six days or whatever. And then I got a call from the app review guy again who said, oh, okay. So, Here's the deal. The powers that be have discussed it and they've decided that 
the functionality that you have in your widget is not allowed going to be allowed and so you need to remove the widget or we're going to take the app down the app review person told me you have a number of days not weeks to rectify the situation or we're going to take it off the app store so I thought about it for a couple days and I thought of a compromise, which was maybe if you click on the button and it launches the app itself, which then redirects to the app that you're trying to get to, like technically that may meet whatever guidelines they have, right? It's not mm -hmm. that the widget is launching th these third-party apps. The widget's actually launching its own app, which is then launching the third-party widgets. Maybe that would be okay. So I submitted that, you know, a few days later um, and... Uh, Apple immediately reviewed it, which was just a surprise to me. This was like, a, you know, I was working, uh, I submitted, I think, Friday at like 5 p.m. or something. Um, and they immediately reviewed it, uh, rejected the update, and then took the app down. And that right. was on the ninth day. They didn't contact me when they took it down that day. I think I actually emailed the guy um, on Thursday when I sort of thought of the compromise. And I said, hey... What if I have, you know, the widget launch my app, which then redirects, is that going to be okay? And he said, submit it and we'll tell you, um, which became a popular refrain for them. And I said, okay, well, that sounds good, you know, and submitted it, you know, the next day. And then I, you know, I was out on Friday night and looked at my phone and had a bunch of <laughs> messages about like, where's the app? What happened? Um, and that, you know, that's when I knew it got taken down. Didn't hear from Apple at all. Clearly, Greg's story is frustrating and disconcerting. He'd been working on his app for a long time, and it had passed the review process. In theory, if it had passed the process, it has been accepted, and therefore passes the guidelines. I asked Greg if he had checked the rules beforehand, and whether he was under the assumption that he was following them all correctly. My first thought was, like, is it even possible, right? Like, I didn't know if it was technically feasible to launch apps from a widget, you know. So I started looking at the documentation... I saw that, you know, yeah, you can launch apps. Um, but, uh, you know, and so I just built a, a simple prototype in like a day just as like a proof of concept and it worked. And, you know, and then I looked carefully at the, the app extension programming guide uh, to see if there was anything saying you can't do that or you could only launch your your own app or, you know, what, what any sort of like restrictions are there. And I didn't see anything. So I thought, you know, hey, it's worth a shot. After being rejected and having some contact with people inside of Apple's elusive review team, Greg tried to get some guidance from them so he could try and fix what they were unhappy with. He attempted running things past his contacts to see if his new theories would be allowed, and when that failed, he just wanted someone at Apple to show him the additional guidelines that they must be using internally so he could try and follow them himself and advance his application. Over the course of the next several months, really, um, where then I was like, oh, what if I do this instead? And, you know, it was just a lot of, <laughs> their answer was always the same, which was, we can't tell you if something's acceptable or not. You have to code it up, submit it to us, and then we'll review it, and then we'll tell you whether what you have is acceptable or not. Basically, waste your time <laughs> trying to develop something, and then we'll tell you. Because they had clear guidelines, because I did do new submissions and whatnot, and they would say, like, you're violating, you know, the, the app extension guidelines, uh, you, you can't launch apps from widgets, and I would say, there's nothing in, there's still to this day, you know, we're almost six months later, there's nothing in the guidelines that say you can't launch apps from widgets. They would say, you're, you're violating the app extension programming guide, 
And I, I like one of the first conversations I had with him was show me the line in the guide that says that I can't launch apps from widgets. And they said, well, there isn't, there's no line in there that says you can't do that. And I was like, <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was, they were basically like, you know, we can reject, you know, apps for whatever reason we want, basically is what they were saying. And that we don't have to give guidelines, which is, you know, fine, uh, you know, fair enough, right? I mean, there's people are going to come up with stuff that they haven't thought of yet, right? Um, but it, you know, I was just trying to tell them, well, you know, it'd be nice that if, if you've given some sort of guidelines to your app review people, obviously, right, for them to reject these in the future, why not publish those publicly so that us developers know what those guidelines are rather than like keeping them to yourselves? One of the reasons that Greg's story became a famous one at the time is because of a frank conversation that he says occurred between him and one person on the app review team. If this conversation is in fact true, it shows an element of hostility towards developers and highlights a very clear issue in the app review guidelines. Yeah, there, there was one guy there I think took a little pity on me and, and was a little overly honest one day maybe. And he uh, said... It was in reference to other apps that were out there that were doing similar things and were out for weeks. Um, you know, there was actually one app out there that was like fairly close to launcher um, in functionality and in look and everything, um, and it was out for months. Um, I think it actually finally got taken down in like December. Um, I noticed it disappeared from the App Store, but um, you know, so I, I contacted him sometime in, you know, October, November, sometime and said, hey, like, there's this other app that's exactly like mine. Like, why was mine taken down, you know, immediately, or, you know, in nine days, but there's, you know, these other apps that have been out for months haven't been taken down. And he said, well, you know, of course, he's like, well, we can't discuss other apps with you. Mm -hmm. um, but I said, okay, but why was mine taken down so fast? And he said, well, you know, your yours was the first one out. It was a, it was a trailblazer. And we decided that we needed to make an example um, to get the word out that this was not acceptable in widgets. And that he said that he believed that that was, uh, that that went well, that it worked because they're not seeing very many submissions of widgets attempting to launch apps. This statement that Launcher was being made an example of sent shockwaves through the development community. There has always been a history of people getting rejected and it being covered heavily in the press. A lot of the time, this can force Apple to change their decisions and help push things forward. But in this instance, somebody inside Apple seems to have made the decision to use Launcher to fire a warning shot instead. Rather than adding guidelines or making any of these kinds of decisions public, a choice had been made that rejecting this app would now potentially make enough of a splash in the developer-focused Apple media that it would push developers away from creating apps like Greg's. On his blog, Marco Arment called this a disgraceful, disrespectful, and cowardly way to create and enforce policies, and it's burning a lot of developer motivation to work on iOS. This caused many people, like Ben Thompson of Shotekery, to call into question exactly how the editorial team at Apple that focus on featuring apps and their app review team work together, if they even do at all. The fact that Launcher was approved, then featured, then pulled, shows that there must be a disconnect somewhere, or that word is coming down from up high too late in the process.
Next week, I want to take a look at some other stories of how people work with getting their apps reviewed, how they deal with rejections, and try to think about how and if Apple's review policies could be overhauled. Here's a little of what you can expect next week. That was that was the riskiest submission that I've... That's the most nervous I felt about a submission and a review that went on for a few weeks and I felt almost certainly that it was going to be rejected. I think we as developers, we like to think that um, if Apple continues to treat us badly and if they don't improve things that, you know, bad things will happen to them. But I've got to be honest, if if Apple's goal is to make as much money as they can and if their goal is to build the best products that they can, it's it seems to me that being tight-lipped is, is the best way to do that. I think it, it, it kind of has a chilling effect. It can It can cause people to say... Oh well, if I'm just going to get rejected, I'll just never update this again, or I'll be—I I won't push the boundaries uh, because I'm too afraid of it. Inquisitive is a production of Relay FM. You can find show notes and links for this episode at relay.fm slash inquisitive slash 30. If you've enjoyed this show, please subscribe to us in iTunes or your podcast app of choice. Inquisitive is produced by Stephen Hackett, Adina Niamtu, and me. Marco Savage is our editorial advisor. Huge thanks to everyone who has provided their time and feedback to help get this series off the ground and to continue to spread the word about the show. The music you've heard today was created and provided by Brave Wave Productions. Support for this show has come from Campaign Monitor and Bushel. You can find out more about this show and all of our shows at Relay FM by visiting relay.fm. I am Mike Hurley at iMike on Twitter, I-M-Y-K-E. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, bye-bye.